Let's open our Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12, it's on page 245 in the Pew Bible, if you'd like to use that resource. The song they just sang are the last words of David. Uh, We have yet to get there in our sermon series, but we will eventually. We're in 2 Samuel 12 today, and the last words of David are recorded in 2 Samuel 23. Uh, They were not the last words that David ever spoke, but they were his final public address to the people of Israel. And in that final public address, David reminds the Israelites that one who rules justly is has the effect of the early morning sun that brings life and vitality wherever it shines. And when David ascended the throne, that's how it felt in Israel. Saul, who had been a self-consumed king, um, living in paranoia and fear, where it was all about Saul, David had a zeal for God. He was a man after God's own heart, and his love for God spread like contagion throughout the rest of Israel. But even David knew, as he gave these last words, that he did not not measure up to that ideal. Like so many of us, David's reach exceeded his grasp. David, though he was a man after God's own heart, was by no means a perfect king. And the tragic narrative of 2 Samuel 11 that we looked at last week is a painful reminder that the best men are still susceptible to the worst sins. So in his final words, David looks not at his past, but David looks to what God is going to do in the future. God had promised David that there would come one of his own descendants that would rule in righteousness, and God would establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And a thousand years later, God's promise to David was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. In his humanity, Jesus was the legal, the royal heir of David. And in his divinity, he was and is the eternal son of God. He is the God that we have come to worship today. David's final words are fulfilled in Jesus. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. And we say, as Paul did in Ephesians 1, we praise God for the glorious grace He has poured out on us through his dear son, Jesus Christ. God's grace is glorious because it's greater than our sins, even the worst sins. In 2 Samuel 12, God pours out his grace on David after he committed the heinous sins of adultery followed by murder in an attempt to cover his sin of adultery. We too stand in need of God's grace because David's sins in 2 Samuel 11 and what led to those sins really serve as a mirror to our own lives. In fact, Jesus would say in his Sermon on the Mount that if you have ever lusted after a woman in your heart, you have committed adultery in the heart. That's where the seed of the physical act begins. He says that if you have ever had a hateful thought toward another person, you are guilty of murder in your heart. So let us not look at David and say, how could he commit those crimes? Because friends, we commit those sins all the time. And yet God's grace that was sufficient for David is sufficient for us 
too. And that's what 2 Samuel 12 is about. And as we think about David's sins in the previous chapter, and God's grace that awaits him in chapter 12, we have to ask ourselves, lest we distance ourselves too much from David, who among us has not grown lax in our own relationship with God? Who among us has not caved into temptation? Who among us has not tried to conceal our sin by lying or through other acts of deception? Who among us have, has not attempted to use our influence to manipulate and control other people in such a way that it serves us and our purposes to gain an advantage for ourselves? We are all guilty of these things. In one way or another, we have all been in David's shoes. And that's what makes God's grace to David so relevant to you and me today. And that's what 2 Samuel 12 is about. Thankfully, God loves his children too much to leave us in our sin. God loves his children too much to leave us in our sin. That is the great hope for every person who knows Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And we get a beautiful glimpse of this in 2 Samuel 12. It's evident from the very first verse of this chapter that sets in motion every other grace that follows. God's grace pursues David. God's grace brings David pain as he is forced to see his sin and to suffer the consequences of it. But God also in his grace provides pardon for David to clear him of all his sin, to provide full forgiveness. And not just pardon, but God in his grace gives David power to become a changed man. And the one who rules justly God ultimately in the life of David gives David a clean heart and a fresh start. And that's what God does for us today. So let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 12, beginning with God's pursuing grace. The chapter begins with these words, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Now, if you have been with us, you know that the word send is very significant. It has been in the last couple of chapters. And in the previous chapter, 2 Samuel 11, the word send or sent appears 12 times. And the majority of the time, it is, it is given in reference to David. He is the primary person who is sending. And as we saw when we studied chapter 11 last week, every time that David sends in that chapter is to fulfill his own selfish purposes. He is the king, but instead of using his power and authority that God has given him to serve the people, the flock of God, he instead uses that power and authority to serve himself. So we see, for instance, that when he saw Bathsheba bathing from the palace rooftop, David sends one of his servants to inquire about her. And the servants come back and said, oh, this is Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. Hint, hint, keep your eyes and hands off her. But David doesn't listen, and so he sends messengers to bring Bathsheba to himself, and he commits adultery with her. And then later on, David sends Bathsheba's husband Uriah off to battle in the hardest part of the battle, purposely so that he would be killed. It is an indirect act of murder 
on David's part in an attempt to conceal his sin. And then after all that occurs, we read that David sends one last time in chapter 11 to bring Bathsheba to himself again so that now he, she can become his wife. And the chapter ends with these words, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the very next verse, the very next statement we read, chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord sent Nathan to David. And what a great reminder this is for us, that when we sin, God is not a passive onlooker. God is not a passive onlooker when we sin. By the time Nathan confronts David, uh, the sins that he had committed were probably almost a year earlier. And sometimes when we sin and we try to conceal our sin, we think that we got away with it. Maybe God didn't notice, or maybe God just kind of swept us under the carpet, but Scripture says that is not true. God not only sees our sins, but God will deal with our sins. And so he sends Nathan to David. This shows a couple of things. First of all, that God is ultimately in control. Uh, David has been sending as the king, as the one who thinks that he is in control, but now God sends, and David's going to be held accountable to God as a reminder that God is the one in ultimate authority. And even the most powerful kings and rulers on the earth are accountable to him as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. But the fact that God sends also shows that God cares about David too much. God loves David too much to leave him in his sin. God in his grace is pursuing David even when David is trying to hide his sin from God. And so God sends Nathan, David's counselor, David's close friend, to confront David about this sin. Let's read on. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, and one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, this man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. David, Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives in your arms. And I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? 
You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Let's pause there for a moment. One of the king's duties was to administer justice, just like the judges did. Uh, Pastor Mike had talked about uh, in his prayer about the the students studying the book of Judges, and, and they were judging the various cases throughout Israel to rule righteously. And then once the monarchy came, the kings took over that responsibility. So one of their jobs was to administer justice. And so Nathan comes to David, and as far as David concerns, this is a real situation that happened. Nathan is coming to him um, as part of David's cabinet, as you will, and is bringing this case before him to see what ought to be done about it. As Nathan tells David of this atrocity that has taken place, David becomes enraged at the rich man's ruthlessness. And he has no idea that Nathan is talking about David himself. By the time that Nathan says, you are the man, David has already judged himself worthy of death. He even invokes God's name, saying, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this thing deserves to die probably the first time that David had thought of God in quite a while. Remember last week we said that when we are caving into temptation, Satan does not fill us with hatred for God, but with forgetfulness of God. And there's no mention of David calling on the Lord, praying to the Lord, seeking the Lord in the last chapter for some time. But in his righteous indignation, he says, as the Lord lives, the person who has done this thing deserves to die. Now, it's interesting. David rightly insists that this rich man who took the poor man's ewe lamb ought to repay the poor man four lambs for taking and killing the one little ewe lamb that he had. This shows that David understood the law. Because in Exodus 22.1, that is exactly the penalty for that sort of crime. But what's interesting is before David uh, gives that sentence, he first, in essence, assigns the man to death who had done this thing. But stealing four lambs or four sheep was not a capital crime. One who did that would not receive the sentence of death. So why is David so hard on this man, essentially giving him the death sentence for what he has done. I think a couple of things. Number one, because in this instance, his act of stealing was particularly cruel and ruthless. This man had many, many flocks and herds. He could have picked any one of his own possessions, but he took the one little ewe lamb, the only precious possession that this poor man had. And I think there's something else going on here. I think that sometimes even when we don't see our own sin, perhaps even in our subconsciousness, we are most sensitive to the same sin that we see in other people. A lot of times we easily recognize this sin in other people without recognizing it in ourselves. David is enraged, and rightly so. And so Nathan and God have David right where they want him. 
The Scottish preacher Alexander White said, Nathan's sword was within an inch of David's conscience before David even knew that Nathan had a sword. David is oblivious to his own sin. And as soon as David delivers the verdict that this man deserves to die, Nathan thrusts him with the sword of truth saying, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, I anointed you king. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you his house and his wives. I gave you the whole house of Judah and Israel. And if that were not enough, David, I would have given as much more to you. Why have you despised my word? Because by despising my word, David, you have despised me, the God who has given you so much. To despise God's word is to disregard it. To act as if it doesn't matter. So if you don't know God's word, you don't care to know it. And if you do know God's word, you don't give a rip what it says. You're just going to do what you want to anyway. Showing contempt for God's word, a careless disregard for it, is the core sin from which every other sin flows. Notice that God didn't say to David, you committed, he does go on to say, you committed adultery with Bathsheba, you killed Uriah with a sword. But David's first and greatest sin, from which every other sin spouted, was he despised the word of God. He disregarded it. He, he didn't give any consideration to it. He was simply consumed with what he wanted to do, rather than what God wanted for him. Verse 9 specifies David's sins with an emphasis on the people he hurt. Listen to this. The Hebrew text really brings it out well by placing the direct objects of his actions, the people, before each verb. So it literally reads this way. Uriah the Hittite you struck down with the sword. His wife you took to be your wife. But him you killed with the sword of the Ammonites. So David had not only disregarded God's word, but David had destroyed people as a result. They were serious sins that would bring serious consequences. And so we move to painful grace. Painful grace. And we need to listen carefully to this if we have ever disregarded God's word ourselves. If we, in our own selfish pursuits, have hurt other people, not looking out for their welfare, but looking out for our own. We need to hear this. But thank God that he pursued David in the first place, because now he's going to deal with David's sin in order to bring ultimate healing to David. But that's going to come at a price. There's going to be pain involved. So after God's pursuing grace, we see painful grace, in verses 10 to 15. Continuing on, we read this pronouncement from the Lord through Nathan. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly. 
but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who was born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. I can't imagine how difficult it was for Nathan to deliver this message to his good friend David. But Nathan was most committed in his relationship with God before any other friend. And so when God sent Nathan to deliver this message to his friend David, Nathan did so faithfully. A true friend will tell you not always what you want to hear, but what you need to hear. Proverbs 27, 6 says that the wounds of a friend are faithful. And no words would have hurt David more than those words, you are the man, and the consequences that would flow from that sin. Nathan went to his house. You know, as hard as these words were for Nathan to say, I think he knew that they were even harder for David to hear. We're simply told that Nathan went to his house, but if we could speculate just a bit, I would imagine that Nathan probably went home and wept for David, prayed for David, and simply probably recovered emotionally from this most difficult message he had to deliver to his dear friend. But he also knew that David had just heard a mountain of a message. And it would take time for David to process these things and to cry out to the Lord and to, and to pray and to, to deal, to do some of that heart work with the Lord regarding his sin and be prepared for the consequences that would come as a result. We're told in the passage that Ethan and Nadine read moments ago, Psalm 51, that David wrote this psalm. This was his prayer of confession to God after Nathan confronted him. It may well be that when Nathan went down to his house that David wrote that psalm that very night as he simply processed everything that he had heard and came to grips with the reality of his own sin and the consequences that would now be faced. God would bring a whirlwind of trouble upon David's house. As we consider the consequences as spelled out by the Lord through Nathan, we must remember to view this in light of the whole counsel of God's Word, all of Scripture. James reminds us in his New Testament epistle that God does not tempt anyone to sin. That is to say, God did not directly cause these members of David's household, his sons and his daughters, uh, to sin, to do violence to each other. No, they would sin on their own accord, but God, though he does not tempt anyone to sin, God is still sovereign over sin. And God uses all things, even bad things, even evil things, to accomplish his good and holy purpose. And that's what happens here. God was going to use these sins from David's own household to discipline David. And also, listen, 
to warn you and me about the dangerous consequences of sin. That other people are always affected, always influenced by good or for evil by how you and I live our lives. No man, no woman is an island. How we live influences everybody around us. And when we despise the word of God, which is the greatest sin, we also damage other people in relationships, which is also very serious because they too are precious in the eyes of God. The severest consequence in terms of the immediate future and the emotional impact that it would have on David was the imminent death of his and Bathsheba's newborn son. I'll admit that's a hard pill to swallow. What are we to make of an innocent child dying instead of his guilty father? It's natural for us to be greatly troubled and perplexed by such a thought. And there are no easy answers. 30 years ago, uh, when I was in my uh, first full-time pastoral position, serving as an associate pastor of student ministries, there was a couple on our youth ministry team, our volunteer staff, uh, that were newly married and were very devoted to the Lord. They were a great couple. In fact, the Lord later called them into full-time ministry and and this brother has been a pastor for many years now. But at the time, they were, they were a volunteer couple in the church serving with our youth, fully devoted to the Lord and to the young people, and, and were a great, uh, wonderful couple to have on the team. But prior to their marriage, they had engaged in premarital sex. And she conceived a child as a result. And because of this passage, they were scared to death, even after they were married, that God might take their baby as a consequence of their sin. That would be a heavy weight to carry around, wouldn't it? Knowing that you sinned and knowing how God dealt with David, might the Lord deal that way with me? Well, I was very young in ministry at the time, and so they went to the senior pastor for counseling. I'm glad they did. Um, I don't know exactly what he told them, but it definitely helped them grapple with this fear and worry. I'm going to say more about the death of David's son in just a moment, but for now I think we need to be mindful of a couple of things. Number one, Scripture makes it clear that there is no unrighteousness with God. No matter what God decides to do in any given situation, Ultimately, we must trust in his character that there is no unrighteousness in him. We have to remember that when we see how God is working or why God may allow something, that we, unlike God, do not have the whole picture. We don't know how God is going to ultimately use a terrible thing for a good and holy end, which means that we have to trust God even in the most terrible times and even when it comes with sin's consequences. It's also clear, speaking of that, in 2 Samuel 12, that God's purpose in the death of David's son was to discipline David, not to punish the baby. In fact, if you go on to read of the evil that arose from David's own house, including the crimes of rape and murder, and just how God ended up dealing with them, 
From the baby's standpoint, this may well have been a mercy of God to spare him from being on the receiving end of these crimes or perhaps growing up himself to live a sinful life. We just don't know. We can only go by what Scripture says. The Bible says that the secret things, the things that are not revealed in Scripture, belong to the Lord. I mean, He has infinite knowledge we do not. He is God, we are not. But Scripture says in Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that are revealed in Scripture belong to us and to our children forever that we might obey the Lord. So this is recorded in Scripture as a lesson for us. God's discipline, as severe as it may be sometimes, is still a demonstration of His grace. The author of Hebrews reminds us of what Solomon, the second son born to David and Bathsheba, that we'll be reading about in a few minutes. The author of Hebrews reminds us of something that David's son Solomon wrote to his son. Words that are recorded in Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12. Do not despise the Lord's instruction, my son, and do not loathe his discipline. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, just as a father disciplines the son in whom he delights. Parents that don't love their children don't care what they do. They don't discipline them when they do wrong. But a truly loving parent, because they're concerned for their child, will want them to live rightly and will discipline them accordingly. So, Discipline, as severe as it may be, is actually a demonstration, a manifestation of a parent's love for their child. And after quoting these words from Solomon, the author of Hebrews goes on to say, No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. King David's last words that our choir sang so beautifully moments ago, shows that he had been trained by God's discipline. He had been trained by the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Listen again to his words. The God of Israel spoke, the rock of Israel said to me, the one who rules the people with justice, who rules in the fear of God, is like the morning light when sun rises on a cloudless morning, the glisten of rain on the sprouting grass. Is it not true my house is with God? For he has established a permanent covenant with me, ordered and secured in every detail. Will he not bring about my whole salvation and my every desire? David proclaimed these words after going through the furnace of God's discipline. And David himself would say in Psalm 51, Lord, You are just when you judge. Though your discipline is severe, I trust in you to meet it out according to your righteousness and for my ultimate good. And so near the end of his life, David is to publicly proclaim, God will bring about my whole salvation and grant my every desire. That sounds like the peace of a person who has been trained in righteousness. But what if God in His grace 
had not pursued David? What if God had simply left David in his sin? David would have never known such peace. Furthermore, David received not only peace, but pardon. A great measure of David's peace was the result of the pardon he knew that he had received. Look again at verses 13 and 14. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. So we see not only God's pursuing grace with David, and God's painful grace with the consequences that would flow from David's sin. But here we see God's pardoning grace. According to the law, David deserved to die for what he did. Because he murdered a man, not a lamb. But David receives mercy and forgiveness instead. Notice how simple his confession was. I have sinned against the Lord. Given the seriousness of David's sins, adultery, murder, cover-up, manipulation, shouldn't he have said more? Shouldn't he have groveled before God a bit? Wallowed in his overwhelming sense of guilt? Pleaded with God multiple times for his pardon? Isn't that what we do sometimes? We should know better, but we're still inclined to think that if we pray just hard enough, if I repent multiple times again and again and again and again over the same sin, asking God, please forgive me, please forgive me, please forgive me, that somehow the intensity of our penance, if you will, contributes to our atonement. But it doesn't. August Augustus Toplady, in his hymn, Rock of Ages, understood this biblical principle and rightly testified to the Lord in this hymn, Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. You must save in you alone. David knew that his salvation did not rest in the intensity of his sorrow before God but it rested with the God of grace who would give David the gift of pardon. You know, I was thinking perhaps it was good David didn't say more. Because when I tend to talk too much, even in my own confession, I start thinking, well, you know, I did this, but she did that. Or I did this, but it wasn't as bad as what so-and-so did. Or Lord, I know I did this, but you understand the situation I was in and why it was so easy to succumb. A lot of times when we continue to expound on our confession, if we're not careful, we can actually begin making excuses or shifting blame or minimizing our sin. It's almost like we're, we're trying to convince ourselves of something rather than confessing our sins to God. The New Testament word, the, the, the New Testament is written in the common Greek language of the day, and the New Testament word for, for confess is homologeo. It literally means to say the same thing. Confession is simply agreeing with God, calling sin what it is. That's what true confession is. And so David is agreeing with God that the way Nathan spelled out his crimes, you are the man, you know, you, you killed Uriah with the sword, you took his wife to be your wife, 
you murdered her husband. David says, you're right. I have sinned against the Lord. Now we know David eventually did say more. As I mentioned a moment ago, it may have been that very night that that David continued to process things and, and to really expound on this simple confession recorded here as he wrote Psalm 51. David pours out his heart before the Lord in that psalm because David knew that he deserved death. But he knew that based on God's word through Nathan that he had received grace instead. Grace and mercy. But this grace was costly. David would not die, but a death would occur. The death of David's own son, Bathsheba's son. It's almost as if the child is David's substitute. Dale Davis wrote, and I quote, I do not intend to read New Testament meanings back into the Old Testament text. I only want readers to note the pattern here, for there are some of us who know this paradox of forgiveness that is both free and costly because a son of David has been our substitute. Unquote. Jesus bore David's sins and our sins in his own body on the cross taking the penalty that we deserved so that we could be forgiven instead of condemned. Paul Gerhardt, the German hymn writer, understood the significance of substitutionary atonement when he wrote, What thou, my Lord, hast suffered was all for sinners' gain. Mine, mine was the transgression, but thine the deadly pain. Lo, here I fall, my Savior, Tis I deserve thy place. Look on me with favor and grant to me thy grace. That's the hymn, O sacred head, now wounded. That's the grace that David received, grace that is greater than all our sin. This pardoning grace is available to you if you will confess your sin and call on Christ to save you, believing that he is the substitutionary lamb of God who gave his life for you. Scripture says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. No other conditions. God, you don't know what I've done. I mean, I have been guilty of some serious sins and and more than I can count. You know, some of the Old Testament prophets said that, said our sins have reached to the high heaven. My sins are so far over my head, I can't even begin to number them. But God says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you are a who, then that includes you. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord. Grace not only pardons us, but it also provides the power necessary to change us. And this is the final main point. Powerful grace. We have seen God's pursuing grace in the life of David. His painful grace as David is forced to see and deal with the consequences of his sin. We've also seen, though, God's pardoning grace that God has put away David's sin. God has forgiven him, though that forgiveness came at great cost to God himself. And now, fourthly, powerful grace in verses 15 to 31. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of life. In the previous chapter, David is completely consumed with himself 
and his own sinful impulses. Uh, people are not people to him. They, they are pawns to suit David's own sinful purposes because the world revolves around David, or so he thinks. But now, because of God's powerful grace, David is a changed man. I want you to notice the first evidence, his concern for his child. His concern for his child. Verses 15 to 23. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. And he went down to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servant said to him, what is this thing that you have done? You, you fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. So much could be said in this section, but I want to focus on the change that has occurred in David. David is who had been so consumed with himself that he would steal a man's wife and murder the man, uh, not even comfort her when her husband dies at his own hand. David is so concerned for his son that he can't even eat. He lies all night before the Lord and he won't listen to those that are trying to get him to get up and to eat something because David gives himself to relentless intercession for his son. David's concern is so intense that when the child does die, David's servants are afraid to tell him because they're afraid he might do some harm to himself. That is so how intensely engaged he was in the care of his son. God didn't grant David's plea. The Lord stuck to his word that though David's sin had been pardoned, his sin did carry consequences in this life, and this was one of them. But I think God loves the fact that David prayed this way. God, who has shown me such grace, maybe he'll show me even more. I think God says, I love to see a man who understands how gracious I am. It doesn't mean that I will grant his every request, but he knows that showing grace is my forte. Showing mercy is one of my greatest joys and strength as a loving God. It seems by now that David does not merely have a grip on grace, 
But God's grace has a grip on David. He's changing him. David knows that because of God's grace, he will one day see his child again. He will go see his son, even though in this life his son will not return to him. And what a comfort that is for parents who have lost children. Next evidence of God's powerful grace in David's life was his compassion for his wife. Verses 24 and 25. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her and she bore a son and he called his name Solomon and the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. For the first time, David began treating Bathsheba as his wife. It's interesting, as I said a moment ago, that when David got her pregnant before she was his wife, and then in an attempt to conceal his sin, he made arrangements for her husband to be killed. And it says that Bathsheba lamented and mourned over the death of her husband. It doesn't say anything in that passage that David made any move whatsoever to comfort her. He simply sent people eventually to bring her back to him so he could, she could become his wife. Now the Lord recognizes Bathsheba as David's wife before she was Uriah's wife when the sin was committed. But David's sin has been put away. She truly is his wife at this point. And David comforts his wife. Now think about this. David had confessed his sin to Nathan, right? Nathan went through the story, says, you are the man. David says, I have sinned against the Lord. And then, uh, probably a very short time later, perhaps that very evening, David writes Psalm 51 for all the world to see. It is highly likely that at this point, with David having made his confession before God, that David made confession to Bathsheba. She very may well have known at this point that David was responsible for the death of her first husband and that David was responsible in a sense for the death of the child that had been born to him. And yet, God's grace gave their marriage the strength it needed to endure the consequences of David's sin powerful grace in the life of David. And I would venture to say powerful grace in the heart of Bathsheba. The only way a marriage could endure the effects of such sin would be a miracle of God's grace. Not only was this marriage unbroken, but God recognizes the marriage. He blesses them with another son. And God and David names him Solomon, which means peace knowing that David has already suffered a a crushing consequence of his sin, knowing that more trouble awaits him years later as God would cause evil to arise out of his own house, David knows there's going to be a lot of trouble, a lot of conflict, a lot of catastrophe around him, but he has come to know God's peace within his heart. He names his Solomon, his son, peace. That's what Solomon means. And we're told that the Lord loved him, And that God wanted David to know that. So he sends Nathan with another message to David. I think Nathan was really glad to be able to deliver this news to David. First time it had been really hard, but this time it would have been an utter joy. 
After receiving this wonderful message from Nathan, the Lord loves your child. David gave his son Solomon a second name, Jedidiah, it says, because of the Lord. And Jedidiah means beloved by the Lord. Bountiful grace. Powerful grace. But it didn't stop there. God revealed His powerful grace not only by producing positive change in David that revealed itself through his concern for his son and his comfort and care for Bathsheba, his wife, but also by giving David victory, his conquest over his enemies. Verses 26 to 31. Now Joab, remember he was the commander of David's armies, Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah, moreover I have taken the city of waters. Now then gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called by my name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it and took it. And he took the crown of their king from his head, the weight of the crown was a talent of gold and it was and in it was a precious stone and it was placed on David's head and he brought out the spoil of the city a very great amount and he brought out the people who were in it and set them to labor with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them all toil at the brick kiln and thus he did to all the cities of the Ammonites then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem I think there's a picture here in David as a type of Christ, as as the conquering king where all nations will be subject to him, all nations that have opposed him. But I think in the immediate context, there's another lesson that we can see. It's very clear in this battle that Joab had done the lion's share of the work. And yet David was honored with the victory. In the same way, the spiritual battles that we win, the positive change that takes place in our life by the grace of God. God gets all the glory. Apart from Him, we can do nothing. But even in His grace, even though we can do nothing apart from God's grace, even though God is the one who makes us want to do His will and gives us the energy to do His will, so in a sense, God does it all, God still rewards us when we make it our aim to please Him. Even though the victory belongs to the Lord, God still rewards His servants when we rely on His strength to win the battle. That's marvelous, infinite, matchless grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. I wonder if God's grace is pursuing you today. You've disregarded God's word. You've misused people to serve your own advantages. You've hurt them in the process. You deserve judgment, not mercy. And yet mercy is God's specialty. Grace is His gift to undeserving sinners like you and me. God's grace is by no means cheap. It cost Him the life of His own beloved Son. God knows what it's like to lose a child because He gave up His Son for us. Scripture says God loved the world in this way, that He sent His own Son to die for us, and that God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but so that the world could be saved through Him. I wonder if you've received God's gift of salvation through Christ. You can do that right now, actually, where you're seated. If you have never done that, simply admit to God that you are a sinner, that you have despised His Word, you've neglected it, 
You have sinned against him. You've sinned against other people. You've hurt people in the process. Most of all, you have grieved the heart of God. Simply admit that. Don't minimize your sin. Don't excuse it. Don't blame it on somebody else. Simply agree with God for what it is. Confess that sin to him. Admit it. Secondly, believe that God provides pardoning, empowering grace for you, just as he did for David. And that gift is available through his son, Jesus Christ, who loved you and gave himself for you. He died and rose again for you. We sang about that earlier. My hope is in the Lord who gave himself for me and paid the price for all my sins at Calvary. For me, he died. For me, he lives. And everlasting life and light he freely gives. Not just for people in general. For me, he died. For me, he lives. Will you take God at his word and believe on Christ? And then thirdly, confess him as your king and live accordingly. And even as Christians, we who have already admitted that we're sinners, we've already believed in Christ of our Savior, we've already confessed him as our king. And even though we seek to live accordingly, as faithful subjects of the King of Kings, we still constantly battle temptation every day of our lives. And like David, we at times cave into temptation. We lose the fight often. And that's why it's just as important for us to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. Because we need God's grace every day. God's grace reminds us, or the gospel reminds us of our dependence upon God. The gospel reminds us that we must be protected from pride. The gospel reminds us and that we can be kept from despair. I think it was uh, Jerry Bridges that said, Our best days are never so good that we're beyond the need of God's grace. And our worst days are not so bad that we're beyond the reach of God's grace. Isn't that awesome? God's amazing grace. It keeps us from despair. It evokes praise and thanks to God for the tremendous kindness He has shown toward us through Christ, grace that is undeserved. It motivates us to love and good works, to do good to others, to no longer live for ourselves, but to live for the one who loved us and gave himself for us, and to spread the good news about Jesus to people who are still encumbered in their sin. And have never heard of God's saving grace in Christ. Who have never experienced this new life and vitality that is found in Christ alone. What a a motivation that is for us not only to receive this gift, but to proclaim the good news of salvation to others. And finally, the gospel reminds us that true freedom, true peace, true forgiveness, true pardon is found in Christ alone. For Christ alone can give us a clean start, a clean heart and a fresh start. Let's pray. Father, I pray that David's prayer in Psalm 51 would be our prayer to you as we acknowledge our sin, receive your grace through faith, in your crucified and risen Son. God, we thank you that your grace is greater than our sin. Help us to to hold on to that reality and to sing with utter sincerity as we close out today's gathering. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.